Two and a Half Admins, episode 117. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alex. And here we are again. Thanks for joining us again, Alex. We really appreciate you coming back, kind of being that bad. Uh, depends where you're sitting. Nah, seriously, it's fine. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. And just a reminder to plug your show, Self-Hosted, which is at selfhosted.show. People should check it out. I want to talk to you about ARM. Microsoft recently announced their $600 Mac Mini-like ARM development kit. They're calling it Windows Development Kit 2023, which is a little bit clunky. But uh, I posted a poll on Twitter. And the question was, how many major upgrade cycles with your main work machine do you expect to go through before you transition to an ARM machine? Now, Jim, I think you said never. And meanwhile, Alex is literally sitting here on an ARM machine. So fight, I guess. Well, you didn't ask when will most people have transitioned. You asked when will you, and I don't think I will, mostly because I suspect that RISC-V is going to be ready for me before I'm forced to transition to ARM. My big concern, honestly, is that x86 winds up deprecating without either ARM or potentially RISC-V ever having evolved a similarly wide-ranging system to be able to connect peripherals whatever you like, whether it be a SATA controller, SAS controller, a different GPU, whatever. So far, all of the ARM devices we see are embedded style devices. And that includes, you know, the Apple M1 stuff. You're not going to be building the PC that you want. You're going to get the consumer device that the consumer device company wanted to provide to you. And you're going to use it the way you got it. I don't think that's likely to change much with ARM, I think we've got a better shot at RISC-V evolving something that truly replaces x86-64 because that hardware is already open. So I feel like there's probably going to be more leeway for it to grow into something that I would find truly useful. My entry point into the ARM ecosystem was an M1 MacBook Air, which is probably not a surprise to most people. But I think the reason that that system has been so performant is because of the way it was designed and packaged at the chip level. You know, all the memory is integrated in there, so you don't have a lot of latency, storage, all that kind of stuff. Like like Jim says, it's a, you will take it as we give it to you. You will, you will like your medicine, won't you? And you don't really have any upgrade path besides just buying a new widget. And I'm still at odds with the switch to ARM, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of small things that don't work quite properly, like Docker. I mean, this, this is a Mac thing, I suppose. Docker desktop for Mac, for example, is a pain in the ass still on uh, on ARM systems. Virtual machines, too, the performance is a bit weird, and I'm using a different set of packages. So actually, all I end up using my main work machine for, even though I've got all this wonderful horsepower, and I do a little bit of video editing and photos and stuff like that that does use the M1 for what it was designed for, But primarily, it's a VS Code and SSH terminal. And I could do that on pretty much an X240 from 10 years ago and be perfectly happy. Yeah, but it wouldn't have the battery life that the M1 machines give you. That is true. That is very true. And, you know, that that brings us into the actual story, which is about Microsoft's $600 entry. I don't think it's enough. The Apple M1 machines, they're, they're very impressive. Now, they're not for me for the reasons that I mentioned before. Uh, the the lack of any kind of an upgrade path or the ability to customize the build puts them right out the window for me. It's just not something I'm interested in. But with that said, you know, Apple has done an incredible job with the actual M1 CPU and its performance. It's incredibly thermally efficient. It's performant enough to hang with, you know, a 
most i7 level CPUs and some even Intel i9 level in some cases the M1 can hang with. So it makes it a lot easier to overlook the things that you can't do with it or any other problems that you might have because you have this, you know, in the case of the MacBook Air, completely passively cooled, no fans whatsoever. Or in the case of the M1 Mini, there is a fan, but you're really never going to hear it even if you're running the thing flat out. Like, that's amazing if it's really well into the standard consumer lifestyle. Again, I'm not the standard consumer, but then when we kick the can one step further down the road and look at what Microsoft is introducing, it doesn't have that incredible performance level that the M1 does. This is a pretty bog standard Qualcomm lackluster underperforming ARM chip. Is it fast enough? Sure. I mean, it's faster than most Celerons. It's faster than like, you know, the Pentium Gold or Pentium Silver nonsense. But it's still an underperforming CPU by comparison to really solid gear, which is not a problem that the M1 has. But what it does have is an NPU, neural processing unit. And that is one of the big selling points of it, that most AI and ML workloads can be offloaded to this chip. And so having a CPU that's a little bit lackluster isn't a huge issue. Here's the thing, Joe. This article from The Verge supposes that this is designed for developers to build native ARM apps for Windows 11. This is in contrast to the route that Apple have proven already works by writing a translation layer in Rosetta 2. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Like, how do you get people to develop apps for ARM if the hardware isn't there. And I think by shipping an underpowered, lukewarm, finished system like this, you're not going to get consumers excited about it who are going to be asking developers to create stuff. It's a bit like gaming on the Linux desktop. Like Until Valve created the Steam Deck, people weren't asking for gaming on Linux, really, outside of our circles, I, I suppose. Well, you could argue Proton before the Steam Deck, which was kind of a precursor to it. But yeah, before Valve started throwing some serious money at it, at least. Mm. And now that we're bringing Valve into it, I think this is a useful contrast, but I think we can sum it up a little bit more simply. Valve didn't half-ass it. Valve threw a lot of effort into making it easier and convincing developers that plan to distribute their games on Valve's platform. They threw a lot of effort into getting them to write cross-platform apps in the first place. You had native Steam support very early on. You had Valve encouraging and working with developers to build native Linux ports. And that already got a tremendous number of games available, far more than it had ever been available before. Then you add Proton to the mix, and Proton comes in and swoops up the majority of what's left. You know, the studios that didn't want to bother cross-compiling, that didn't want to bother thinking about cross-platform issues when they built the app to begin with, well, now you just run it all in Proton. And again, you know, this is not just kind of a half-ass, throw-it-at-the-wall-and-see-what-sticks effort. They really went for it. And the results speak for themselves. And this comes back to what I was saying, you know, comparing Microsoft's dev kit versus the M1. Microsoft didn't go for it. They did not swing for the fences here. They put yet another lackluster Qualcomm chipset into a box and said, good enough, and walked away from it. And I don't think that's going to get the job done. Well, yeah, you look at even the M1 MacBook Air that I've got, that can play with my 9900K i9 and my 9600K. It's somewhere in that territory, which is, okay, it's not the most modern 13900K or whatever, but it's 
they are decent Intel CPUs from only a few years ago, and it can play with them. Whereas in 2022, to be releasing this Qualcomm thing, which I've seen some benchmark results, and it seems to be sort of, you know, getting towards the M1. But the M1 is history at this point. It's two years old. We've got the M2, and soon we're going to have even more powerful M2 Ultras, and, and who knows what else is coming from Apple. And so you're right, this is a bit lackluster, but it is also only 600 bucks. A bit lackluster in real terms in Geekbench scores is 55% slower than the M1, by the way. The other thing, you know, we, we talked about Valve and uh, Valve working with developers to, to make sure that Linux availability, you know, improved because they made it a, a serious, they made it a serious company goal to make Linux gaming actually possible and worthwhile a lot of that, of course, was to divest themselves of too much of a dependency on Microsoft, who they no longer trusted for good reason. Mm. But we're still, now we talk about Apple and the M1 again, it's not only about Apple's in-house efforts either. Apple worked really hard with Adobe and several other premier developers for the Mac OS operating system to make sure that their apps not just ran on the M1, but took advantage of everything that they could on the M1, that took advantage of capabilities that the M1 offered that weren't there on the Intel side before to make sure that, you know, hey, on launch day, when you look at Adobe Photoshop, you're going to look at some really amazing neural network driven, like, you know, filters and uh, smart select and whatever that we can throw right up on the screen and point you at it and have you go, wow, that looks amazing. As opposed to Microsoft, again, being like, hey, developers, uh, you know, here's a $600 box you can buy and uh, we hope you build some cool stuff. Apple didn't say, Okay, anybody that wants one, like if you like, maybe you want to be a developer and like write some apps and stuff, like you can buy this Mac Mini. <laughs> no, they they had like a long lead up and they seeded their partner developers with the hardware and with support and learning how to take the best advantage of it. And so at launch day, when you could buy this thing, when it made the news, you had a compelling platform on powerful hardware that really made an impact. And if there were some small paper cuts along the way left over, you didn't mind because like, holy crap, look at this amazing, super fast laptop that doesn't get hot, has no fans. The battery life is insane. It's all these major apps. Like it was an amazing experience. And again, Microsoft, by contrast, is saying, so like, hey, here's like a $600 lackluster box that's like, I don't know, half as fast as the competition and you can buy it if you want to develop stuff. But hang on, Apple literally did that. They had their developer kit thing, which was based on the Apple A12Z Bionic. And you had to buy that and then ship it back to them. I think a major difference, though, was that Apple also shipped Rosetta, as I mentioned. You know, even if as a user, my particular dev house took a year or two to update my favorite app, I could still as a customer apply pressure whilst using the M1 and say, hey, come on update your stuff, please. And uh, I'll still continue using the Intel port for now. Well, Microsoft does have a Rosetta equivalent. I don't know how good it is. I wouldn't imagine it's as good as Apple's one, but it does exist. That's the thing about Rosetta is as an end user and a technical one at that, it was indistinguishable whether I was running a native M1 Silicon app or an Apple Silicon app or a Rosetta app. I think Discord for about a year and a half was intel <laughs> and uh it switched to apple silicon fairly recently and i can't say as i noticed a huge difference to be honest maybe that's a discord problem 
there was the lag like the first time you ran an app that needed to be Rosetta 2 converted when it would, you know, do the the one-time conversion and then like save the the state results of it. So you didn't experience that again, but if it was a really large app, the very first time you opened it, it could take a while. And it, to be clear, again, to any listeners who aren't familiar with this stuff, I'm not talking about the first time after you turn the machine on. I'm talking like literally the first time you run the program after you install it. In terms of user experience, I mean, we're still only talking about it like a couple of three seconds typically, but there could be some startup lag while Rosetta 2 analyzed it and did its thing. And before we move on from that, Joe, I would just like to backdate to you saying, oh, well, you know, Microsoft has its own translation thing. Like, it's probably not as good as Rosetta. I mean, you're right back to exactly what I've been saying, which Microsoft is half-assing it. And I don't know that half-assing it's going to get the job done. Nobody looks at Rosetta, too, and says, oh, well, sure, there's a way you can run x86 stuff, but, eh. you know, they talk about how amazing it is. And same thing with, you know, Valve and Proton. Like, nobody's talking about, it. like, oh, well, you know, you can kind of get games running on Linux when there's no native. Like, that's the way people talk about Wine. It's not the way people talk about Proton. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. Everyone going to the World Cup must have this app. Experts are now sounding the alarm, according to nrk.no. So the World Cup is happening shortly in Qatar, somewhat controversially. And in order to get into Qatar and go to the World Cup, you have to install a couple of apps which have quite deep tendrils when it comes to permissions. Yeah, it's basically like the old days. If any of you remember when Facebook first started releasing apps for Android, and they just asked for every possible permission that they could have. And, you know, back then I screamed about that and I said, you know, why are you installing this? Don't install that. Just use the website. You have a browser. You don't need the app. But unfortunately, rank and file consumers just don't care. They will see an app that says, I want access to every single bit of data on your phone and all of the hardware devices anytime I want. They say, oh, well, I'm sure they're not going to use it for anything bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we're looking at basically the same situation again with these uh, these apps required to, to go to the World Cup in Qatar. The more troubling of the two apps is a COVID tracker. And according to the government of Qatar... Anyone over the age of 18 who enters the country must install that app on their phone, period. No exceptions. Bruce Schneier pointed out that uh, Saudi Arabia has similar requirements, and he knows of people who landed in Saudi Arabia and left the airport and nobody had gone over their phone and made sure they did the thing and extrapolated that, oh, well, it probably you probably won't have to in Qatar either. 
I think that was an incredibly irresponsible position for somebody like Bruce Schneier to take. By far the more reasonable and more responsible position here is to say, hey, the government of a country that people are already really concerned about has stated in no uncertain terms that you are required by law to install this thing on your phone. And this thing that you're required to install on your phone owns it. (laughs) It has access to read, modify, delete, whatever, all of your data, control all of your hardware devices. There are no exceptions. Like, don't tell people to minimize that. That's a big, big deal. What's the solution then? One would be, don't go to Qatar. Yeah, watch the World Cup on the telly like everybody else. That's the solution. (laughs) I mean, for some people, they're going to go, right? Because reasons. And for other people, they're going to watch it on a smart TV that already owns them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So maybe the solution is take a burner phone with you. Take a dumb flip phone or something and uh, leave your real phone at home. But try being a tourist with a flip phone. How are you going to navigate and stuff? I don't think it really needs to be a flip phone. I think burner was the correct answer there. I mean, I'm just going to assume that we're not talking about doing anything illicit in Qatar, which would be another incredibly bad idea that we're absolutely not going to advise people on. So the assumption now is just you don't want the government of Qatar getting its fingers into like the rest of your life outside of when you're in their country. So the answer there is don't take your actual phone to Qatar Probably just don't take any phone there. You know, buy a local burner when you get there. That way you won't have made a mistake about what frequencies are or aren't supported, you know, what networks, roaming charges, yada, yada, yada. If you can't possibly survive between your home and, you know, when you when you sit down in Qatar without a phone, then yeah, go to Walmart and get a burner. It doesn't need to be a flip phone. It can be like a smartphone and you can install games on it and all that. The point is just don't take your data there. Now, we'll also mention when you buy that burner, it's a burner, which means you can't log into it with your real Gmail account if it's Android. You can't log into it with your real MyCloud if, well, I don't think anybody's buying a burner iPhone, but you get the point. And you could buy a burner iPhone. Uh, People buy used iPhones off of Craigslist for 50 or 60 bucks all the time. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions, normally for Jim and Alan, or your feedback or anything, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Joe writes, I want to learn to use WireGuard, and I've seen a lot of tutorials and heard the promise of its ability to break through double NAT, etc. Sounds really interesting. However, I created a simple home lab with a server which consists of a Raspberry Pi acting as a server and a VM sitting in a KVM NAT. I've opened IP forwarding on everything, the Pi, the VM host, and the VM. Firewall rules on each device allows port 51820, but the connection just can't succeed. I believe everything is configured properly, but wondering if the router needs some special permissions to allow the WireGuard traffic through. Could you explain some more of the pitfalls and gotchas that could block VPN traffic, even with firewall settings, port forwarding, and the ability to ping both endpoints? Well, looking at Joe's configs, um, they're unnecessarily complicated. There are post-up and post-down stances on both the Pi server and the VM client that do IP tables rules, and that's normally not required at all. 
In particular, I'm concerned that these specific IP table rules include masquerade, which is IP table speak for network address translation. Now, even if that worked, it would mean that you would have difficulty telling where the traffic came from on the other end, because you'd be masquerading to the local IP address of the machine you're connecting to, which is not generally going to be a great idea. The other potential issue that I notice is that, and this may in fact be my fault to some degree, Joe is listening on port 51820. My very early demonstrations of using WireGuard used that port number, and they used that port number because it's in the dynamic range. Being in the dynamic range means that it's less likely to fall afoul of you know some other protocol using it or a non-privileged user being able to open the connection. But it's not necessarily the best idea for production use cases because routers that are having to do network address translation to get out to the internet, they will frequently close down UDP connections a lot more quickly if they're in the dynamic range than the static range. So you might want to look at just carefully selecting. There is no actual INA assigned port for WireGuard, but maybe carefully select one below 1024. I will frequently use 444 because it's really close to 443 that everybody remembers because it's HTTPS, but it's not. (laughs) There is some IANA assigned service that uh, technically owns that port, but it wasn't anything that I'd heard of, I don't believe. So I use that one pretty frequently. But basically, the configs really just don't need to be difficult at all. You don't need post-up rules that set IP tables, much less do masquerade. All you really have to do is just forward the port from your router to that device. And Joe, actually, when you were writing in, you mentioned you'd heard the promise of WireGuard's ability to break through double NAT. And by itself, WireGuard's just routing packets. So it's not magic. It's not going to be able to magically punch through double NAT for you. You're going to need to do some kind of outbound cloud server or something that is not behind double NAT, like punch out from behind the double NAT to connect to some kind of main server. And I know they're a sponsor, but this is exactly how Tailscale works. They have servers that are in the cloud that you connect to. And when you log in with your credentials on your local client, all it does is it talks to that kind of lighthouse server, for want of a better better word, stealing a nebula name there, which is another kind of mesh VPN network. So yeah, maybe Tailscale would be worth a look for you, or Nebula, or Netbird is another one, which is built around the WireGuard protocol as well. There's lots of things that are designed to solve this specific problem that will help you with the double NAT problem. WireGuard itself, without some extra source, won't help you, because like Jim said, the package just won't know where to go. Well, it sort of depends on what the perceived double NAT issue is. OpenVPN, let alone IPsec, can have difficulties in a double NAT environment, even if we're not talking about the issue of inbound things that should be port translated. Now, if your issue is, I'm behind an ISP NAT that doesn't allow any port forwarding, and then I've got like another NAT, then yeah, you're going to have to go outbound, like Alex said. But if it's more just an issue of like, well, I am double NATed and I've seen that cause reliability issues with other VPN protocols I've tried, like OpenVPN or IPsec, then yes, WireGuard may very well help a lot with that problem. And yeah, Tailscale may be an easy way to to get started with that. Uh, I will also mention that as far as the idea of having a machine out in the cloud that everybody connects outbound to, You don't necessarily need tail scale for that. That's exactly what I do. But for me, also, again, a sponsor of the show, uh, I have a Linode VM that I use for that. 
Just their cheapest $5 a month Javi will will do that just fine. And to make it clear, what we're talking about here is a, uh, it's, it's a star topology, right? So the idea is that your cloud VM is at the center of the star. Now, even though you're connecting outbound to that cloud VM from your home and you're connecting outbound from wherever you are outside the home, let's say you're at a hotel somewhere on hotel Wi-Fi. Now, both of those connections are outbound to your VM on the cloud, but once they're established, you're still able to reach everything. You can get to your machine at home just fine. You can get from your machine at home to your laptop at the hotel or whatever, just fine. Again, all you've really done is avoided the need to punch any holes in NAT, either at the hotel or at home, because both of them are going outbound to the cloud VM, and there are no real restrictions in place on either side going outbound. And that's typically going to be the case. You do have to be a little bit concerned when you're talking about, you know, road warrior stuff. You may very well encounter some environments where no, just everything is not blindly allowed outbound. Like if you are wanting to support small business people and some of their road warriors have to go into like small government offices or school networks or what have you, you may find that there is no connection to a VPN without going through that organization's IT department. Another thing to consider as well is that WireGuard routes over the UDP transport layer rather than TCP. So typically most firewalls, if you're opening ports and things like that, which you probably don't want to be doing anyway, but they will default to TCP. So just bear that in mind as well about UDP. Now, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention that Tailscale also has a self-hosted cloud option called Headscale. So you can host that kind of cloud portion of Tailscale without relying on Tailscale as a company to do that work for you. And like Jim said, maybe a Linode VM or system would be a good choice for that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash two five A. Okay, Pear says, what file system would be good to use for USB sticks and memory cards? I presume that there is no wear leveling. I use Ubuntu and Raspbian. So first off, there's no wear leveling because that doesn't happen at the file system level. That actually happens at the hardware level. The controller of the physical media is what's going to implement wear leveling if there is any. Typically on cheaper USB thumb drives, there won't be. Typically, on devices that are billed as USB SSDs, there will. Now, unfortunately, there really isn't a genuine hard and fast distinction between the two. They're not actually separate categories of devices. But if you keep that idea in mind as you look through the marketing, it'll probably lead you to the right thing for what you're looking for. I wish I could tell you that every device will say it has wear leveling or it doesn't. 
Nothing that doesn't have wear leveling is going to warn you, and a lot of the devices that do won't bother to brag about it because most customers don't know what it means. Alex, you want to tackle the file system part? I don't think it matters, really, as long as you pick a a well-known, famous one, EXT4, XFS, whatever supported by your operating system, really. So you might want to consider something like XFAT. There it is. (laughs) Which is supported by Windows and Linux and macOS without too much problem. That's probably a consideration, Jim. Do you have a thought about XFAT? Yeah, honestly, Alex, I was just annoyed that you started out leading with EXT4 and NTFS. Uh, The right answer for almost anybody for a portable device is going to be XFAT. The reason it's going to be XFAT is because XFAT is a non-patent encumbered, widely available everywhere version of the old MS-DOS style file system. And one of the really nifty features, it was designed specifically for portable devices, which would have a limited amount of wear endurance available. So it produces less churn than most file systems do. And in turn, that means less wear on a device that can't take that much of it. I'm shocked as a longtime listener of this show, Jim, that you're not recommending ZFS. <laughs> I'm trolling you. I'm trolling you, clearly. No, I am not recommending ZFS <laughs> on a thumb drive. <laughs> you can do it, but it's not typically going to be a very good idea. Yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you should, hey? So the, the actual disadvantage to using XFAT is uh, you can't set ownership and permissions. On EXT4, NTFS, or whatever abomination Apple's using today, You can say this file belongs to this user and this group, and these are the permissions that that user and that group and everybody else has to access it. You cannot do that, period, on XFAT. So if you need multi-user ownership and permissions, or you just need those to stay intact, then you probably should be considering the majority file system for your normal day-to-day device, be it NTFS for Windows or EXT4 for Linux or what have you. The other option, if you just need to get a backup onto an XFAT device without losing the permissions, is to make a tarball or a zip file along the way. Because that way your permissions and your ownership metadata can be preserved inside the archive where they won't get wiped out once the archive itself is copied onto the portable device. I don't wish to belittle anybody for using a USB stick or a memory card, but uh, network and cloud storage solves both of these problems and permissions and a whole bunch of other stuff like syncing between devices and all that Ooh. kind of stuff. Obviously, there's a tax involved because it's a service to run and maintain and what have you. And there are times where physical media, i.e. a USB stick or a memory card, is the right solution. But it's also worth considering in this scenario, isn't it? There is no cloud storage. There's only somebody else's thumb drive. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. What's your podcast called again, Alex? Hosted by Amazon, apparently. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Google hosted? Is that it? Am I I getting warm, Alex? Look, I run an xCloud in my basement, and that does me just fine to sync all my crap between my different devices. I know different people have different problems with nextcloud, but for me, it's it's been pretty good. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. Thanks a lot for joining us for both episodes, Alex. It's been a blast. We need to have you more often, I think. I will double my fee next time. How about that? Sounds fair. Yeah, it sounds very fair to me. So Jim, Alan, and I will be back next week. But until then, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Ironic Badger. See you next week. <laughs>